Welcome to the Great British Foreign Affairs Podcast, hosting insightful conversations with fascinating people to shape the way that Britain interacts with the world. In this episode, I talk to Emma Reuters, an economist from South Africa, and we hear about the elections there this year, about how South Africa's history shapes the country it is today, and about the role it is playing on the world stage. So welcome, Emma. I'm so happy you're here. And we are going to be talking about South Africa, which feels like a big topic for this year, for those observing from outside. I'd love us to just jump in and tell me about yourself, your background and your connection to South Africa. Thanks so much, Anna Joy. So yes, my name's Emma. Um, I am South African. You might be able to hear from my accent. I'm from Cape Town. And yeah, I've got a background in economics and most of my work history has been looking at issues that affect South Africa as particularly in the economic space, also quite interested in uh, investment flows into South Africa, particularly from Japan, but increasingly looking at just South Africa's place in the world and some of the key issues that are facing South Africa today. Yeah, amazing. And you're based in London at the moment, aren't you? So that helps us with the UK-South Africa connections, which we will get on to later. But I'd love you to start, I'd love you to try and sum up South Africa for listeners who haven't been. So a little bit about the culture, food, geography, maybe some of the things you love about your country. Yeah, so South Africa is a fascinating place. It's um, right at the bottom of the continent of Africa. And we're a population of about 60 million people. Our GDP is about 400 billion USD. Um, so I think we're one of the top 30 biggest economies, top 35, they're about 40 and certainly one of the more, and I think about top three or two in Africa, depending on how uh, currency fluctuations are at any given time. But yes, yeah, so South Africa is yeah, a beautiful country, very diverse. We've got about 11 official languages, including English, Afrikaans, Zulu, Kosa, Spedi, any uh, any number of languages, and they're all wonderful languages. It's a uh, yeah, it's, it's a, I think, a great country. We've got some of the best food in the world. I think we're one of the best uh, or one of the largest citrus exporters in the world. So if you love good fruit, South Africa is the place to go along with incredible wine. And um, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating place with a long history. And yeah, uh, some wonderful parts, some amazing moments where we've surprised the world and and changed people's expectations about what can actually be possible. But then also some unfortunate points in history where I think we've disappointed ourselves and the world and and we could have done better. So um, yeah, that is that is South Africa in a nutshell, a beautiful tapestry of of culture, um, the meeting point of two oceans right at the at the bottom of, of, of Africa. And you just touched on it a little bit there, but tell us about its place in the wider continent of Africa. So I think South Africa has always seen itself as kind of a, a leader um, in the in Southern Africa, South Africa, and it's it's seen itself, and I stress it. South Africa sees itself as a trailblazer visionary in in the wider African context. But in some ways, I think we haven't always successfully managed to balance that out with some of the lived realities. You know, in the last couple of years, we've seen uh, significant increases in xenophobic attitudes and 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 attacks on on migrants and so on uh, from other African countries into South Africa. So while we balance out, I think, a very successful sort of foreign policy and, and relations with, with the broader continent, um, for example, we've We've just established a visa-free travel with Kenya. So there's there's quite a lot of exciting developments intracontinentally. And we've always had very strong relationships with all of our neighboring countries. But I think there are some challenges that South Africa also needs to grapple with in its its role and um, how, and, and it's how it views uh, other, other African countries. 
just just in in some of the rhetoric that 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 we've seen mm. yeah. and we started the year on this podcast looking at elections over 2024 of course there are a lot of them globally but south africa was a particularly interesting one i think we had it in the bucket of potential upsets <laughs> and there have been developments since i think as well so tell us what's going on with elections in south africa Yeah so it's a it's a huge year for us in terms of elections we have essentially the ANC the African National Congress has been in power since 1994 and they've always had an incredibly strong majority but increasingly you know economic performance South Africa has been dealing with uh, things such as load shedding and widespread allegations of corruption i think what what increasingly voters are starting to feel you know dis- disenchanted with the ANC uh, broadly at the same time we're seeing we've recently seen a quite a major reform to South Africa's electoral act um which is allowing independent candidates to stand for the first time and that is going to potentially be a seismic shift in how democracy is done in South Africa until now in order to be a political candidate you needed to be part of a party now you can be an independent and you can you just need to get i think it's a thousand signatures and there's a certain kind of funding threshold and most analysts are, are saying we're going to see a coalition government for the first time uh, since our democracy began in 1994 but it's not quite clear what exactly that coalition what shape that is going to take there's a lot of interesting parties that could go into coalition with the ANC i think most analysts are saying that in the, so in the previous election the ANC was at about 57% and it's expected to drop to 48% in this upcoming uh, election this year and so you've got the opposition which is the democratic alliance and then you've also got the economic freedom fighters and there've been other interesting dynamics where there's been kind of this multi-party coalition that's been uh, agreed upon and that's the DA with a bunch of other parties including the Quarter Freedom Party and others have kind of created this pact that they're going to you know form their own coalition government that's as exciting as that sounds for them i think there've been some polls that have come out recently that said that they at the moment a lot of they haven't got a lot of visibility yet south africans are not really aware of what this multi party coalition pact is and what it entails so i think there's it being the first kind of coalition style uh, election south africans it's it's a complete first for many uh, for many of us and we're still trying to understand exactly how this is going to work uh we've seen in on the kind of local level the ANC's lost power in in certain urban centers um over the last uh, over the last couple of local elections and we've seen coalition governments at that local level which have there's been some challenges there at the moment we're still trying to figure out exactly how to sort of troubleshoot some of those areas i think johannesburg has had nine mayors in the last 18 months or uh, some insane figure um so i think yeah there's still quite a lot of turmoil there's still quite a lot of uh, but i but south africa is a thankfully and um and and I'm always inspired by our countries it it it's resilient and it does it's not it, it's not a country that gets sort of mired in uh, old ways of doing things it it's quite dynamic and and manages to evolve quite quickly so i expect there will be some difficulties initially but i also expect that we will rise to the occasion <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And I'd love to understand more about how this fits with South Africa's history, of course, apartheid, Nelson Mandela and where where South Africa comes from in terms of that history, but then how it fits in terms of what that means for the country now and going forward. Yes, yeah, so South Africa as as most listeners probably are aware um has a very dark history of apartheid so apartheid quite fascinatingly it it actually originated out of a democratic a so-called democratic process so south africa 
use the a Westminster style system, a constituency based system for most of the 1900s, if not earlier. And a, the a fairly right wing party came to power, the National Party, and systematically disenfranchised um, black voters and eventually managed to take white minority rule of the country. And then, you know, obviously many of apartheid's laws and, yeah, laws, and they actually began in many ways before apartheid officially started, so before the National Party came to power, for example, the 1913 Land Act, which took away land from from black voters, from from black citizens, black farmers, and and later on the color bar, which uh, basically put um, race-based restrictions on miners and other workers in sort of industrial sectors. Those things t- took place long before apartheid actually came into force. And so apartheid starts roughly 1948. And some of the raft of, of policies and, and laws that take hold from then on are things like the Group Areas Act, um, the Mixed Marriages Act, the Immorality Act, which actually banned people f- of particular races from living in particular areas. People were forcibly removed from their homes, sometimes overnight, dumped in fields and were forced to to start afresh with with literally nothing. Their homes were bulldozed. There were, you know, the Immorality Act, which is, you know, no interracial marriages or any kind of fraternization of any kind. And so effectively, South Africa became completely segregated from that point on. And as we all hopefully know, um, in 1990, in, uh, the, the ANC was one of the um, key resistance parties. Not not solely, there were other parties, there was the PAC and, and a few other uh, resistance, both political movements and non-political movements that took place in South Africa until, oh sorry, political parties and non-political parties that, that, that resisted apartheid over until until the late 80s, early 90s. And finally, uh, Nelson Mandela, I think, released about, released and then became president in, in 1994. So just one more point to add on the issue of South Africa's uh, democracy and the history of democracy in South Africa, or in some cases, lack thereof. So while a, a big component of the uh, the apartheid government was to uh, roll back the rights of of black citizens over time. It's it's actually also true that th- that there was not universal enfranchisement of black voters in South Africa. So only in the Cape Colony or the Cape Province, um, where Cape Town is, could black voters actually vote at the time. And other parts of the country, and and eventually the Union of South Africa, did not necessarily have enfranchisement. So I think apartheid obviously then existed in various forms and and had various stages. So, I mean, there's a clear starting point for the apartheid era, which was 1948, but a lot of those, that oppression, that segregation existed before that in various forms and and was happening as part of a very long-term process. So... I think that history definitely informs how South Africa operates today. I mean, just an example, in the uh, 1980s, quite a few changes were made, um, further changes were made to kind of consolidate power in the national government as it struggled to kind of keep power of, over the country, you know, under sanctions from the West and, and the, the, wor- the world broadly. I think a lot of the way that South African politics is structured today still it it obviously draws on on that continuity um but largely uh the dynamic has changed so much since since then and and in, we've seen basically all apartheid regulation and and has been repealed and south africa's even even the provinces were drawn and renamed so we now have a very, we've got a national structure, provincial level, and then the local level. There's a very strong sense of justice and uh, th- that undergirds the kind of South African psyche as a result of, of, of our history. But yeah, politically, we're seeing uh, South Africa is new, new trends that, that, that'll be very exciting to, to watch. That's really interesting. So does it feel... Does it feel like a moment for the country, a kind of a new era, or does it just feel like a natural progression forwards? I I think it it feels as if 
Yes, it's definitely a new moment. But I think in many ways, South Africa has been experiencing these moments very frequently over the last couple of, of, of years. So we, we've had a lot of challenges to, to face. So, and, and probably the, the longest running challenge is unemployment. So we've got a large uh, youth population, but our unemployment rate has been high uh, for, for decades. It's sitting at, I think the broad rate is over 40%, which is unheard of, I think, in a Western country like the UK. If, the, if UK unemployment was 40%, I mean, it would be chaos, right? But it is the case in, in South Africa. And it is largely due to the legacy of apartheid. I did mention earlier uh, the Group Areas Act, which, you know, created segregated spaces. In, in many ways, people are, to this day, while most apartheid regulations have been, you know, reversed and so on, people still largely live in the same areas that they did after, uh, you know, this Group Areas Act came into to play. And people commute very long hours to get to work, which means, you know, which in people are talking about walkable cities and so on. That's just, it's, it's just not uh, the case really because of the, the commute and so on in, in, in South Africa. And the other issues that are facing uh, voters today, uh, you know, cost of living crisis, like most of the world, we, we import RM inflation or we import inflation. And a lot of the kind of global events that are driving a lot of these sort of supply chain uh, crises and so on, South Africa's no, not a stranger to that at all. Um, and then I think the final big ticket issue that South Africans are concerned about and worried about is crime. It remains kind of a, uh, yeah, a very difficult reality that South Africans do live with, affecting everyday life um, and it also affecting, obviously, the economy too. Because it's very difficult to invest in businesses and so on when you're not sure, you know, you have to pay a premium for security and, and so on. So, yeah, I think those are some of the big challenges. And as and as I may have mentioned, may not have mentioned, load shedding is another one. Just to explain what that is for those that don't know. Of course. So load shedding or power cuts. South Africa didn't historically have power cuts. And since I think about 2008, 2009, we began to suffer uh, very regular um, power cuts, and this was due to a lack of capacity in the grid. Um, so, fascinatingly, it's not random power cuts. They're actually quite well planned and telegraphed ahead of time. So, most South Africans have an app that tells them that the area is about to be, as we say, load shed, and you'll you'll know for the week when your schedule for power cuts are going to be. That said. Often it's a bit unpredictable. Sometimes either load shedding levels up, there's different levels. It's like level one, level two, level three, et cetera. Or sometimes it levels down and then you don't get a power cut when you're expecting one. It makes planning a bit tough. But at the moment, I think we're at level three, which means uh, I think in about eight days, you'll have a, a couple of two-hour slots that are... Um, but I think you'll you'll be load shed about nine times over an eight day period of two hours, so in two hour slots. So it's quite it's quite extensive, and so you'll come home from work and be ready to cook your food, but there's no electricity, and so you have to you know eat something cold or and so on. So not the best, not the most fun. It has impacted business, and I think it's a big driver of um, some of our faltering economic growth. Um. Why is it so difficult to solve? So there's been a lot of challenges um, in, in solving load shedding. Some of it had to do with, with planning. So at, when apartheid ended, the apartheid government designed the economy to serve the very the white minority. So at the time, according to stats, the electricity was some of the cheapest in the world because, you know, it was serving a very small group, but, you know, had quite a lot of capacity and also supported the mining economy. But in 1994 and onwards, the ANC pledged to, you know, expand electricity access to everyone in South Africa. And they actually delivered on that, um, which is incredible. So most South Africans are now, um, I think we're about 89% uh, access of the population to, to electricity. So, so in other words, there was a massive increase of demand on the grid in a very short space of time. 
but there hadn't necessarily been that additional capacity added to the grid concurrently. And the third, I think another issue has been that the municipalities are the ones that sell or provide electricity to people uh, in the area, and they've got kind of a duty of service to provide electricity. But they've, you know, people, while people now have access to electricity, they may not always have the the funds to pay those bills. So municipalities got into quite a lot of debt trying to, trying to, and rightfully so, provide services to people who need services such as electricity, but not quite getting that, you know, revenue flows to be able to sustain the, 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 the power. And so ESCOM, the, our power uh, generation company, is, ESCOM has increasingly struggled with, with uh, this municipality debt that's just growing and growing and growing because, as, as I mentioned, we've got this unemployment, so people's incomes are not increasing. They're not being able to spend money on electricity and so on. And then the, the, other, the other problem has been supply chain issues. So ele- our electricity is largely coal-generated, and so there's been difficulties in procuring coal. Um, there's been some allegations of corruption at that level about, you know, coal procurement and so on. So those are some of the challenges that South Africa is facing in the electricity space. And there's been all kinds of scandals. I won't get into uh, the the details thereof. But um, yeah, I think South Africa has has its work cut out for it in 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 solving uh, load shedding. I think that's probably one of the top priorities in order to kind of unlock that stagnant economic growth. That said, it is expected that load shedding will start to wind down in the next. Uh, I think by twenty twenty seven twenty eight we shouldn't have load shedding any anymore. And fascinatingly, although Kenya's energy um, generation is predominantly, I think ninety percent powered by renewable energy. In terms of sheer megawatt capacity, South Africa still has the largest renewable energy capacity in in Africa. So, um, it's a it's a complicated story. It's and 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 I do think that there's been a lot of red tape cutting in allowing uh, the birth of a renewable energy sector in in South Africa recent in the last couple of years even. Um, so we'll hopefully see. A lot of investment in that space. I've already seen quite a few exciting projects uh, by the, you know, the Dutch have invested, I think, in hydrogen and a couple of other cool, exciting energy projects are on the horizon for, for South Africa. So I'm, I'm quite positive about that. Um, I'm, a, I'm a South African optimist in, in many ways. Um, really useful to understand a bit more of the background, actually, because we regularly hear about South Africa struggling to keep mm-hmm. the lights on, as it sometimes mm-hmm. briefly mentioned or referred to, and yet to understand actually the the bigger issues underneath, but also the planning that goes into supporting people, the population to live with that at the moment is, is very interesting. I want to zoom out a bit now, because one of the reasons I I was so excited to get you on the podcast is to talk about South Africa's role in the world, the role that it's taking, it has taken, and the role it wants to play. And some of the background, I guess, to that is that it's been part of the BRICS since 2010, so early, uh, relatively early on. It seems to have been very vocal and part of the resurgence of that group. And and then obviously recently we heard about it taking Israel to the International Court of Justice. So not to get into the ins and outs of that, because that is an ongoing developing situation, but quite interested to understand some of the underlying motivations that inform that. And it feels, looking on, that it's taking a bold and confident place in the world and wants to be a leader. I was really interested to hear your thoughts on that, your insights, and how you see that as a South African. Absolutely. I think really good question, very difficult question. But uh, yeah, maybe we'll start out with, uh, with BRICS. So South Africa's role in BRICS, uh, you know, in I think a lot of people forget the origin of BRICS and BRICS in the beginning was merely a term to describe certain emerging markets of interest. It was, I think it was actually a Goldman Sachs banker who kind of came up with these ideas. And at the time there were just four countries and it was just BRIC. It was Brazil, Russia, India, and China. 
But I think there was kind of a sense at some point, and this is where BRICS moved away from being an emerging markets kind of grouping to becoming a kind of geopolitical element. There was a sense that there needed to be an African country there too. And South Africa was managed to to, to position itself there. And I think, I, I believe this was something, a kind of pet project of our the South African president at the time, Thabo Mbeki. And he was actually quite a big sort of foreign policy heavyweight. And essentially, the, in I think it was about 2010, 2010 2009, that uh, South Africa became part of the BRICS. And that's when the BRICS with the S became what it is. And I think over the years, it's become more and more legitimate, so to speak. It's no longer just a grouping uh, which has no real weight behind it. I think there are now, there's like the BRICS Bank and there's now a policy agenda as well, which I don't think necessarily had been the case before. I mean, if you compare those countries, they're like very different economies, very different regions. They're all uh, very, so, so, but now, you know, there's this idea, um, there's this new positioning as a kind of voice of the global South in many ways. And some of the the thinking has been around alternatives to the dollar, uh, trying to trade in your own currency, um, some of those kinds of questions uh, around, you know, representing the the economic agendas of developing countries and, and the global south at large. So I think South Africa has definitely used BRICS as a platform. And of course, it has, it's, it's an important platform and it has also gotten South Africa into trouble, I think, with the West in some ways, especially during the BRICS uh, summit last year, after the the Russia invaded Ukraine and Putin him, himself has had a warrant out for his arrest from the ICJ. This is a recurring theme with South Africa and the ICJ, and South Africa was not pre- prepared to arrest Putin if he was to attend the BRICS summit. In the end, it was... Uh, sort of a non-issue as Putin did not attend the BRICS summit, but um, th- that kind of put South Africa in a difficult position as, you know, America ha- actually wanted South Africa to withdraw from AGOA, which is sort of a preferential market access agreement that quite a few African countries have with the US. So I think South Africa's feel uh, kind of position has always been as a as both an ally to the West, but also an ally and a champion of the global South. And usually, usually South Africa's played a really, um, I think, strategic kind of hedging. Always, you know, South Africa's like all countries, its interest is still South Africa primarily, and I think it has always done a very successful balancing act. And it last, I think, the last two or three years has been the first time that I think South Africa's really starting to find itself sort of sandwiched between, uh, you know, ge- geopolitical players and forces um, and trying to really carefully navigate these spaces. But at the end of the day, uh, yeah, I think there's, uh, it, it will be something to to continue to watch. And, and especially as now there are a couple new BRICS countries that have joined. We, again, we, we, we might wonder, you know, why have so many African countries, including South Africa, abstained on, in, the, in, on some of the sort of Russia, Ukraine, uh, votes, those pivotal votes, um, in the UN and so on. Um, and you have to look back at the history of the Cold War. Uh, during that time, South Africa was in the throes of apartheid. And while the West did sanction uh, the apartheid government, for a long time, a lot of the resistance movements, including the ANC, um, were funded by the USSR. And a lot of the um, military wing of the ANC and many exiles were went to Russian universities. Um, Some also went to Western uh, US and and UK uh, and uh, universities and so on. But a lot of the, the arms training, the military training was done in Russia and in Russian uh, camps in in African countries. So there is a long sense uh, that, you know, in during the apartheid era and the anti-apartheid movement, the Russians really supported South Africa or supported, you know, the end of apartheid. At the same time, South Africa was also involved in some proxy wars during the Cold War. So, for example, in Namibia and Angola, and at the at the time, even though there were American sanctions uh, on South Africa at that time, the, it, it, it's understood that the Americans 
collaborated with sort of an Angolan faction that then that faction worked with South, the South African government. And there's, there's quite a lot of soft uh, dealings there that despite the fact that there were sanctions, there was a sense that there was still an alliance with the apartheid government with, and the West. And so there, there was some uh, suspicion there. So I think the way South Africa's operated on in some of these ways that, that sometimes the West doesn't quite understand, you have... And those things are very difficult to uh, to divorce from the current kind of policy uh, policy approach. So South Africa then, to go back to 1994 again, and that history of apartheid, really crucial. South Africa at the time was, there was a real risk that South Africa could have fallen into a civil war. And there was, th- th- there was no real guarantee in like the 90, late 80s and 90s that there was going to be a peaceful transition like there was. No one believed that, you know, Nelson Mandela could just come out of prison and be like, well, it's fine. Let's do, you know, create the rainbow nation and have a peaceful transition. There was, there was bombings and violence um, and killings on, you know, it was just a, a terrible time. And and I'm, I'm not saying this was the ANC. I'm saying this was the apartheid government. As It was a very violent time. So I think, in that context, the fact that, you know, there was a peaceful transition, South Africa had a massive moral, you know, it was it was really admired, like in the 90s to present, the, the kind of legacy of Mandela, it, it, it's still really resounding globally. And I mean, the, the evidence uh, and the, the symbolism of that is even in the UK, just outside of Westminster, there's a massive statue of Mandela and alongside figures like Churchill and really uh, the peaceful transition uh, from apartheid to the new South Africa was globally recognized. So South Africa's always felt the sense of a moral authority and a, a voice for human rights in the modern era. And just to to kind of support some of those other, even today, so after apartheid ended, South Africa's got some key, took some st- some key stances on certain issues. and 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 I'm just trying to set the scene a little bit for why and and how South Africa has positioned itself on the ICJ case. So sorry that it's a bit, uh, I'm sort of winding us through the the corridors of history here. Just to set the scene a little bit, South Africa has taken certain stances, um, both domestically and internationally. So I'll, I'll cite the example in, in many primary and secondary schools in South Africa, um, there's been this expectation for especially young black girls to straighten their hair, to almost appear more, you know, like in quote unquote, um, neat and so on. And, and, and not allowing them to come to school with their natural hair. That has been, there's been protests and movements and, and really amazingly, some really young activists, like 13 year old girls who've stood up, um, and, and, you know, fought for their right to have their own natural hair at school. And so there's this kind of activism is really present at all levels of South African society. And another notable one is Roads Must Fall, which took place about actually 10 years ago now at the University of Cape Town. There was a statue of Cecil John Rhodes that looked over the whole of Cape Town, like a really prominent, very like clearly a position of respect. This was a really big statue. And there was a campaign to get rid of that statue because obviously it represents uh, colonialism. You know, there's a really questionable history and impact of of, of Cecil John Rhodes in and and a really painful history for many people. And so South Africa has been really championing a lot of these decolonial, trying to really reestablish the the equality and rights. And so it's it's definitely a continuation of the anti-apartheid movement. These these kind the, the way these ways of thinking of, of how South Africans think and and how the government thinks, and if if I may just add this Cecil John Rhodes Rhodes Must Fall movement made it all the way to the UK and there is also a statue at Oriel College in Oxford of Cecil John Rhodes but unfortunately or you know the, that statue has not been removed by um, Oriel College and the, but there is now a plaque there sort of talking about um, his legacy and trying to kind of contextualize that legacy, which is it's definitely not a uncontested one in, in, in South Africa. So ultimately, it's with that framing that I think South Africa decided to take a stance in the at the ICJ, uh, the International Court of Justice, 
and tried to represent because there has been this um connection and is explicit connection between apartheid and what is happening in Palestine that has been quite a long standing a long standing connection between the anti apartheid movement and the the situation in 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 Palestine so both south africa and israel are members of the icj so south africa was within its rights to bring this case to the icj against israel and it it has been found that there is i, I think the correct the, the wording is that it's plausible that the case for genocide is occurring in israel and that the israeli government needs to ensure that that does not happen i think that is the kind of outcome of the the case as it stands but of course it's a it's an ongoing case and this could take years to actually find out whether it is true or not and i think it's definitely not the end of the story by any means and at the same time i think the the kind of key area where south africa's case was not the, the kind of the court did not rule the request that south africa had put forth was um for a ceasefire so that is still obviously outstanding but if i'm not mistaken this week south africa also put in a um a request for the court to rule on uh what's happening in rafah uh which is there on the the egyptian border um so it's a, it's complicated <laughs> i think the the truth is that it's a very complicated situation and it's very interesting because on the one hand you've got Israel which is a country that is so defined by the history of the Holocaust and um and World War 2 and then you've got South Africa a country that is so defined by apartheid and i think in the 20th century those are the two greatest kind of the two greatest single influences on how we even perceive human rights and how we even understand you know that how genocide works and so it it is it's almost these two moral um heavyweights even you could say that are kind of meeting in this 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 place but for me i think the most significant um most significant thing to take away from it is that the west uh and 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 you can't remove the west from this discussion i think the west talks a lot about a rules based order international global rules based order and there's been kind of this post war consensus and so on um these global governance systems and forums like the icj are exactly there to ensure that pe- that everyone has buy-in in the system. So the fact that a small country like South Africa um or relatively small country can come forward and put forth this case I think is a re- is actually a triumph and it's something regardless of of what the the outcome is and regardless of what your anyone's personal feelings are on it. Um as I'm sure this obviously it's a highly controversial topic. I think it's important that these kinds of global governance forums exist to ensure that that rules-based order that the west champions is that fair um kind of system that that allows everyone to have buy-in. If you don't have these systems then ultimately um you do have anarchy, global anarchy and I think we're trying to move to a place where we can all all countries can feel that there's multilateral spaces for them to be able to express their voices and their opinions and that we can actually we don't need to resort to violence or war or we can actually adjudicate these topics in you know in in these multilateral spaces so i i think for that reason it's it's an important case um and an important uh mark i think for the whole world um to start thinking a little bit about how we talk about uh global issues and how and how, how how countries can can be invested in in the rules based order. Yeah, so um and then the final place I think for South Africa in the world is obviously in sport. I think you can't talk about South Africa and its legacy without talking about sport. And we've always used sport as a like the Rugby World Cup in 1995 as a means to bring the country together and that hasn't changed. Uh you know, we won the Rugby World Cup last year. We're the only country in the world to do it four times. So we are like the undisputed world champions. <laughs> I think that's something that uh you know no matter what happens in South Africa it doesn't matter who you are uh, these kinds of things really bring people together and our rugby team is very much 
you know, we, I think we've had some, so our, our sports system has, has been very racially segregated in the past and uh, increasingly that's not the case. And we're seeing a lot of transformation happening uh, at in, in these various sports uh, too. So another one just to mention is the African Cup of Nations. South Africa got to the semifinals. Uh, or the, uh, yes, the, se- the is, is, yes. And, um, <laughs> I think we were third or fourth, one of the two. We almost got to the, there to the end. And that's a real achievement because, um, our, our women's soccer team is, is incredible. Uh, the Banyana Banyana, but our men's soccer team has always been, uh, not as good. Uh, sorry to say, Bavana Bavana, I support you guys very much, but, um, <laughs> It's it's really uh, been amazing how well they've performed and um, very exciting uh, to watch um, them uh, kind of uh, continue. Yeah, thank you. I I love this because I really feel like you're helping us get under the skin <laughs> of, of some of the things that we might see in the news, but this deeper understanding of the principles behind it, the motivation, the positioning and and the kind of strong impetus about which positions to take and what to do based on both history, but also national identity and how it's moving forward. It's, that's, it's incredibly rich and interesting. So really appreciate hearing you talk about this. I'd love to, to focus in a, a bit on the UK, the UK-South Africa relationship particularly. You've already mentioned some of the conversations about decolonialization, which particularly in my own personal conversations with you, I've found incredibly useful, actually. And I think there's, I mean, not just a zero in there, but I think there's a lot that the UK can be learning from from and with South Africa, actually, as, as it goes on that journey. But, but yes, looking at our two countries, tell us a little bit about the headlines of that relationship and where is it today? Yeah, I, I think South Africa and the UK have had a actually very long relationship. Um, and there is a lot of strong cultural connection uh, in many ways, even to, even today. Um, and I think that uh, there's actually always been a very, or there has often been a very, a very positive relationship, especially in the last uh, couple of years. Um, the UK is still one of South Africa's largest investors. Um, and it's also, uh, I think, the fifth largest trading partner for South Africa. Um, and even in the last, I think, three or four or five years, investment flows have increased dramatically from the UK to South Africa. So there's a very positive, um, long uh, kind of economic connection. And fascinatingly, uh, after King Charles's coronation, the first uh, state visit was from South Africa, was from Cyril Ramaphosa. So there's this this cultural link in some ways too. I think the the UK and South Africa collaborates on quite a number of, um, in quite a number of sectors. I think that we actually do quite a lot of scientific research together, um, astronomy uh, in the healthcare sector, especially after COVID um, and and there's a lot of strong ties in the higher education spaces. I think that it will, there are going to be challenges in some ways in how the UK and South Africa may not see it. And I'm talking obviously in terms of the national approach to foreign policy, not obviously individuals and so on. But I think that in some ways the way the UK has, um, yeah, I, I think, I think there's been some, disagreements in in a lot of the kind of foreign policy stance that South Africa has taken and it's gotten and and you know South Africa's been you know not to uh, not to sort of speak about a different relationship but uh the US also um sp- spoke about removing South Africa from AGOA which is a trade a market access agreement that South Africa and the US have i think in 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 so many ways you know if you see the the UK cleaving closely to the US, I think there's, there has been some tension boiling between uh, the approaches that South Africa has taken in, on the global stage and uh, the, U- the UK. But simultaneously, I think the UK and South Africa both know that they kind of need each other in, some, in many ways. I think that 
Um, the UK is a strong economic partner, uh, a source of a lot of finances. A lot of our services sector, I think our key client is the UK market, given we speak similar languages, have similar kind of relatively similar accents and and have the same time zone, uh, similar time zone. So it would be very difficult for this, for South Africa to completely, you know, and I don't think it wants to, and I don't think it will. And um, I still think for the UK to um, navigate in the African space and and to really understand the, some of the trends in, 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 in Africa broadly and so on, South Africa is a key partner um, and always, and I think, will be because it has this leadership role in so many spaces internationally, regionally, um, and so on. So I, I don't see, uh, I, I see, yeah, um, some interesting discussions to be had between the UK and South Africa on foreign policy. But I, I think overall, there's, there's a lot of opportunity between the two places. Um, and uh yeah, and also the number one um, destination for South African uh, expats is is the 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 UK. Um, I think two hundred and fifty thousand South Africans live in the UK at the moment, which is a quarter of a million. Yeah, so and it must significant. rank somewhere in the opposite way in the I mean, South Africa is well known, isn't it, amongst the British and many people have visited and or want to visit. <laughs> And and feel very Absolutely. very familiar with with South Africa as a partner and, and as a country that it feels that it knows whether or not it does Absolutely. or not. I think that's fascinating what you said about about the US and that's coming up a number of times actually in the podcast that that the UK as it moves forward it's going to have to get quite clear in some cases where it sits uh, where it might sit very closely with the US on a number of things but that that won't always help it in terms of its relationship bilateral relationships with certain countries and I think it has to do some quite important thinking ahead of moments as you say where tension can boil up or particular decisions it has to have quite a clear thought process behind it how it what it's going to do at those moments <laughs> so as not to get itself into tricky situations because there are some really strong historical and current relationships where uh, those bilateral links are incredibly important and it could navigate things quite well if it if it was prepared to I think this is a question I'm asking a number of people that come on the podcast when they are not British, but they're living in the UK. So they they understand the country well. Just from your perspective as a South African, how do you see the UK in the world going forwards? What are some of the strengths that you see, but also some of its challenges that it has to has to phase into? Yeah, so I think for many South Africans for a long time, the UK was literally seen as almost like a land of milk and honey. And, you know, it was seen as the frontier and the, and the best. And, you know, coming here now, um, I do sense that there's, you know, been this almost slight stagnation and sense of decay in the last couple of years. And the UK seems like it's lost its own way and has had a couple of bad knocks you know brexit and i think we're watching we're seeing the uk in a very introspective moment um th trying to kind of forge a new way forward um trying to figure out what what some of the problems that have been building up for so long are and how to solve them i think i think that's that that said I'm always very impressed with, uh, you know, for all of its challenges and flaws, the UK's political system is quite, you know, in, in South Africa, we, we've had, uh, presidents that, and, and, and leaders that we don't like sometimes, but we have to sit and wait until the next election, which is five years to, to get rid of them. If, if, if that. In the UK, if a leader's not performing, his head will roll and you'll get three prime ministers in, in four weeks. Or so, you know, but as bad as that is from a volatility perspective, it also shows that if something's not working, the country is, uh, is dynamic and can, you know, move on to something that hopefully does work. And so I, I, I've, I've always had a, a lot of respect for, for that. And if that's, that's a sign of a, of a, a ro more robust democracy than I think the UK itself sometimes uh, gives credit 
uh, for. And I think that is something that will serve, you know, I think I think that will be helpful for trying to solve some of the economic woes that the UK is facing. Um, and it, and I, I do hope that there's some a moment of renewal and refreshment and a kind of reset of of where the UK is, because it does feel like on on, in, on so many different levels, it's kind of lost sense of itself. And uh, it will be interesting to see. This is also an election year for the UK, if it can really turn turn things around or uh, change things um, to move towards a, a country that 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 is more resilient. And maybe the the last point I'd like to make on the strength side, you know, it really does impress me. Looking from the outside, looking in, you know, m- many people see the UK as this like capitalist, like it's got the finance sector and so on, but it's also got these really beautiful community orientated elements that that are not always trumpeted about like the nhs is well known it's you know this amazing social health care system and it is under fire right now and it is under strain and it needs more investment and it needs some serious reform in order to you know be able to meet but it it is still such an incredible powerful institution in the uk and South Africa has been trying to implement something similar. And, you know, it's taking quite a long time to kind of get, you know, get going and, and it's facing all these challenges. So it, it is inspiring when you see the, the real yeah, mix of, of, of things that make up the UK. It's not an easy to understand country. I think from the, from especially South African or even an African perspective, we tend to stereotype the UK quite a lot as this place, you know, this, you know, the center of this imperial, you know, but actually it, even within the UK itself, it's it's way more complicated than that. And I've, it's taken me years just to understand how the country works and the four nations and the, you know, constituents. It's a, it's a really interesting place and a place to um, uh, an eye on. Thank you, Emma. That's been an absolute pleasure. We really appreciate your insights and I'm sure people are going to go away now and take into account what you said as the, as as they watch the election and as they look at how South Africa acts this year and going forward. So thank you. Thank you so much, Anna Joy. Thank you for listening to the Great British Foreign Affairs Podcast, where Britain meets the world. Subscribe today. Share it with a friend or colleague and be part of shaping Britain's role on the global stage.